Our experience of life is not determined by what happens to us. In this podcast, Eckhart talks to an audience in Chicago. He recalls fond memories of traveling to the Windy City to my Harpo Studios back in 2008. For 10 weeks, Eckhart and I hosted a webinar based on his New York Times bestselling book, A New Earth. The book had a profound impact on me, and I wanted to share it with a larger audience. And those sessions were groundbreaking, to say the least. And since then, millions of people have downloaded that webcast and listened to our conversations. If you haven't already, you really should. I believe rolling back the ego and focusing on being rather than doing opened the door to awakening for me and for many. Today, Eckhart continues his work, ever reminding us that our experience of life is not determined by what happens to us. It's defined by how we respond. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lovely space and wonderful people, all very conscious and present. I can feel it, except for one or two. And those one or two were dragged here by a friend who said, you must come. (laughs) But there is a chance tonight that you might begin to awaken. You may not know what that means yet. And you might say, what are you talking about? I'm awake already. But to awaken in a deeper and different sense, in a spiritual sense. Most of you are here because you are going through the awakening process already, a shift in consciousness. And that is characterized by many things, but primarily the lessening of suffering and unhappiness in your life and a more harmonious way of relating to your fellow human beings and increasing sense of satisfaction that does not depend on external conditions, although you are still able to appreciate lovely things when they come into your life, but you do not become devastated and incredibly unhappy when the lovely things that have come into your life leave you again, because that is how the universe in this dimension operates. There's winning and losing and you gain and you lose and there's continuous flux and there's the impermanence that the Buddha already talked about and Jesus talked about. And you might say, did Jesus talk about impermanence? Well, he didn't use the term as the Buddha did, but he said, don't get, and this is my free translation, Don't get attached to the things that can be stolen by thieves or consumed by rust, moth and rust. I'm sure you know the the lines from the Gospels. Don't get attached to the things that can be taken away by thieves, where where thieves break in and steal, or things that can be consumed by moth and rust. So he uses these two images, thieves coming and taking things away, and the image of seemingly solid material substance turning out to be not that solid after all because it can be 
quickly, relatively quickly consumed by rust. Rust uh, dissolves the seeming solidity of matter and moss, of course, as maybe less so nowadays than used to be, they, but they still occasionally get into my sweaters and suddenly you have a little hole in there and if you don't take it out soon enough, the entire sweater is gone. Jesus uses these images to talk about the fact of impermanence. So not getting attached to things, the things of this world, but being able to appreciate the things of this world. Because as you know, in many spiritual traditions, there has been the tendency, both in Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism, there has been the, the tendency of completely denying the physical and material realm or even regarding it as evil. <laughs> and so the ascetics, monks and nuns and so on, in medieval times there were even many religious people who disliked beauty, they didn't want beauty. Said, no, this is all corrupt. This is, uh, I would suggest, not a balanced way of being in this world, but neither is it a balanced way of being in this world with this excessive attachment to things and the unhappiness arises when you don't get what you want or when what you have is taken away or the unhappiness that arises when you simply imagine not getting what you want or imagine that something that you have is you're going to lose. <laughs> so you have a different state of consciousness arising that is relatively free of unhappiness and capable of connecting with other human beings at a deeper level than the level of personality or person and I have a feeling we may be going into this also more deeply tonight. I have a feeling I'm saying that's because, as you might have noticed, the talk tonight has not been planned in advance, so it comes out of the present moment, so I don't know what's going to be said, of course. <laughs> We're here in Chicago, I fairly rarely talk about the past, especially my personal past. I don't often think about it. However, I could not help being back here in Chicago, thinking about early springtime in uh, 2008, when I flew into Chicago every week for 10 consecutive weeks and did the webinar seminar on the World Wide Web with Oprah. We met here in the Oprah studio in Chicago and talked for an hour and a half about the book A New Earth. And people all over the world were tuning in. And by now it's something like 50 million people have watched it by now. Just an amazing event in the collective consciousness and almost spirituality going mainstream for a while. It's not yet mainstream as you might have noticed when watching the mainstream media, <laughs> but that's fine. You do not judge the 
evolution of human consciousness by watching television or whatever happens on the internet. This does not give you a clear reflection of human consciousness. The simple fact is that most of the things that are given importance in the mainstream media are precisely those things where human unconsciousness manifests most strongly, such as politics and or very destructive events. So the media tends to focus there. And if you take that as a reflection of where human consciousness is at right now, you get a distorted view of where the collective consciousness actually is. So what ultimately matters is, and the only thing you can take responsibility for, is your state of consciousness in the present moment. So I just mentioned briefly this event with Oprah that brought many people to the point where they were able to begin to awaken spiritually. And I'm sure there are quite a few of you here who witnessed that webinar. And that was, time is a very weird thing. Do you know the expression, it seems like only yesterday. And the older that you get, the more often you say that. It seems like only yesterday. And time is a very strange thing. If you look at it, the, we are all in the grip of time on one level of our existence, certainly. We are all like passengers on a speeding train. We could use that analogy. Passengers on a speeding train and the older you get, the faster the train seems to travel. And you cannot say, please stop, I want to get off. <laughs> At least not in the physical realm. It's not going to stop. And what is the destiny of the train? You are heading for a train crash. <laughs> Another word for it is death. So when I say you can't get off the train, that of course is true on one level and on a conventional level it is very true. Another analogy that one could use for time is it's almost like a, a fire that slowly and then more and more quickly consumes us all. We are being consumed by time and then in the end you as a physical form evaporate and suddenly the chair, your favorite armchair where you used to sit, is completely empty and you are gone. This is very strange. So time is a fire that consumes us all slowly and then more quickly. I spoke a few days ago in New York at the Beacon Theater on Broadway. Yes, I was on Broadway. <laughs> And a few days before, I happened to see on YouTube, there was an old video clip that said, traffic and people walking on Broadway in 19, I think it was 1929. And it was a, like a five minute clip of hundreds of people walking. All the men were wearing hats and I think the women too, everyone was wearing a hat. 
and cars, there are already cars, and the people are busy going, going somewhere very important, very important, but now nobody knows who these people were because they have all already dissolved. And then, as I was in the car approaching the theater, I was looking out of the window and, and seeing people and cars walking on Broadway in 2018 and realized it won't be all that long before all these also will have dissolved. And in most cases, if you took a photo and showed the photo to someone 100 years later, in most cases you would say, nobody knows who they are, who they were. And even if one or two are remembered, what difference does it make? <laughs> so the very strange fact of how short-lived our existence is on this level, and facing the impermanence of things, impermanence of all phenomena, in itself, strangely, can be either a frightening thing that you don't want to hear about, or it can be either the beginning of a spiritual awakening or a deepening. The contemplation of impermanence, if you don't turn away from it, but contemplate it. And that could be a simple thing, as what I've just mentioned, is watching a clip on YouTube. I also showed another clip, and that showed a similar thing even earlier. It was Berlin in like, 1913, the very first cameras and short city scenes there, just amazing to watch. If you watch it and don't judge it in any way, just contemplate that, the fact that all these people with all their important business and all their problems, because the strange thing is, by the way, all your problems dissolve with you. <laughs> when you're no longer here as, as a physical form, then the, what you thought were all your important problems, they also evaporate. And, and many of the problems actually evaporate even before then, because only sometimes only a little bit of time is needed and the whole thing is evaporated. But at the latest, the problem dissolves when you dissolve. And this is an interesting fact because many people derive their sense of identity primarily from their personal problems. So when you meet somebody and they start talking about what do you do, who are you, and if they really open up to you, they will begin to talk about their personal problems. <laughs> and so it's amazing how many, for how many people their own sense of self and there may still be one or two here to whom that also applies. <laughs> they regard their sense of self as a problem that requires a solution. And they are continuously looking for the solution of the problem of me. I have to work it out. You wake up in the middle of the night, I have to work out my, my, my problems. It's and you might have noticed you have problems. But if you look on Facebook, you might not realize that, that other people also have problems. <laughs> because on Facebook, they are all 
very happy. <laughs> and you see the wonderful dinners they consume in restaurants. <laughs> and that gives you the misleading impression that you are the only one who has problems. But every, everybody carries a burden of problems uh, that is inevitable because life, you might have noticed, is extremely challenging. And there's nobody for whom life is not challenging. There's not even any life form in addition to human beings. There other life animals and plants. For all life forms, life is precarious and dangerous and challenging and fleeting. And every life form is confronted with it, whatever challenges correspond to that particular life form. So that's a very interesting fact. Life does not cease from challenging you. And that doesn't change even if you awaken spiritually. You will get other challenges, different kinds of challenges. The only difference is, as you awaken spiritually, the way in which you respond to the challenges changes. And that is all important. How you confront the challenges of life, how you react to or respond to the challenges of life determines how you experience your life. How you experience your life ultimately is not determined by what happens to you, because most people think that that's the case. How you experience your life or what you call your life is ultimately not determined by what happens to you. It is determined by how you respond to what happens to you. And how you respond to what happens to you determines what happens in the so-called future, how you respond now. Some people, whenever they are challenged by life, they behave as if there was something very wrong with their life, that things are not supposed to go wrong or be challenging. This is not supposed to happen. And this works on both a small scale and large scale. And you might have met people, and perhaps you were one of those people in the past, people who are continuously complaining about things. They're continuously not in alignment, continuously out of alignment with whatever is going on around them. Situations and people and places and events. Either something is there that shouldn't be there, something is happening right now that should not be happening, or something is not happening that should be happening, or I should be somewhere else but I'm here, and that's a huge problem. I'm trying very hard to get there, but I'm here. Now, this sounds a little weird when I say it like this, but the sad fact is that many people, people live like that for most of their life. They're not aligned with their, what they are doing right now. Yes, they are doing it, but they're not fully in the doing because they'd rather be somewhere else. They would rather be already at the end of this particular activity. And in that mindset, that means your life is stressful continuously. Stressful means 
There's a mental projection of where you need to be or should be, but you're here. So you're engaged in this activity, but there's a, you have certain thoughts that tell you either you already want to be at the end of what you're doing, or although you are doing this, you really should also be doing that, and that, and that, but you're doing this. Dreadful way to live. Normal, by the way, it's called normal. <laughs> and you see it when you watch the movies, everybody's like that in the movies, so it must be normal, they're all like, and people love to see the dysfunctional way in which people live reflected on TV and in the movies, they reflected their own dysfunction and that is a confirmation that, okay, I'm actually okay because everybody's unhappy. Everybody is living in this way, or in a state of almost continuous dissatisfaction, except for brief moments, sometimes to do with having a good meal or sex. Could do it for a while, this doesn't last very long. Or you get what you wanted, you get what you wanted, the thing that you said, oh, that's what will make me happy, and then you get it, and for a moment you feel, Ah, and you feel this happiness arising. And you think you feel this happiness because you got what you wanted, but if you look more deeply, you will realize that you, you do not really feel happy because you got what you wanted. You feel happy because for a very short time period, the mind structure that was always unhappy with, with the isness of things, there's, there's something is missing here, I need that, I need, I need to get rid of that, I need to get... That mind structure subsides, and for a moment you don't want anything except what is here now. And that suddenly you feel more alive, you feel, ah. Then perhaps you begin to understand why the Buddha talked about the greatest obstacle to spiritual awakening being continuous, well, he called it, and in the translations, it's called desire. But a, a better translation of what the Buddha was talking about is a more vital term, is wanting. This, the continuous wanting, wanting this, wanting that, wanting the, this, the neediness, the wanting, and that is a mind structure that operates in humans that prevents them from experiencing the deeper dimension of reality which we could call the timeless dimension, the timeless dimension of consciousness. Remember, we talked about time a few minutes ago. <laughs> we talked about time and Yes, a few minutes ago, and we talked about the express train that you can't get off. We talked about the fire that is consuming you, that is time, that is true. But the good news is that there is in every human a deeper dimension of consciousness. In many humans, it's only a potential, a latent potential like a seed. In others, the seed has already begun to sprout. There is the possibility in humans of accessing and living from a deeper dimension of consciousness. And accessing that deeper dimension of consciousness is what we could call 
spiritual awakening, where you realize that in addition to being a person, a personality or a person who lives in this world of time, of past and future, in addition to being this person, there is more to you. There are other dimensions to who you are, or more specifically, there is a deeper dimension to who you are than the merely historical person. And that's why we are here tonight, because I want this not just to be a conceptual talk, although of course we're using words, but the aim is for you to experience, and even if it's only a glimpse, or to deepen, for many of you it'll be just a deepening because you already are sensing what it is that I'm talking about. You say, I think I know what he's talking about. You're already sensing within yourself what it is that I'm talking about when I speak of a deeper dimension of who you are, a deeper sense of identity of who you are. Now, we need to look just very briefly, I'm sure you're already familiar with this and you recognize it in your own life. And the identity is of extraordinary importance. Your identity, very few things are more important than your sense of identity, which is your sense of who you are, because everything flows from there. Everything flows the way in which you act in this world, what you think, how you relate to other human beings, how you perceive so-called reality is determined by your sense of self. Your sense of self is the filter through which you experience the world. And your sense of self is your identity. The great question about identity is, who am I? That is the ultimate question. Now, as you may remember, in ancient Greece, the all-important dictum in ancient Greek philosophy, probably the question was first uttered by Pythagoras, one of the very earliest Greek philosophers. Pythagoras was primarily a spiritual teacher, which is not generally known. It was probably him who said the all-important dictum is, know thyself, know yourself, know thyself. And, and the, the Greek philosophers regarded it as so important that it was inscribed in many places in stone. At the oracle in Delphi, it was inscribed in stone, know thyself. Okay, so that points to the fact that identity and self-knowledge is extraordinarily important. Now, in conventional discourse, if you say, know thyself, or who, who are you, they say, what are you talking about? Of course I know myself, and then they come up with, that's my name, that's what I do, that's my education, that's my personal circumstances, and that's who I am. And anything else would be absurd. That's how would conventionally, if you go to TV station or something and talk, I want to explore identity and say, what are you talking about? This is the situation room. We have other things to talk about that are more important. There are many things that are relatively important and there are other things 
or rather one thing that is absolutely important. And this one thing that is absolutely important is the subject matter for our gathering here. And once you realize that, 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 that deeper dimension in yourself, then all the so-called problems that you have in your life are no longer all-consuming. They still exist on one level, but even there changes may happen and will happen. But you are no longer consumed by your problems. And that's a wonderful liberation. And that means you no longer derive your sense of identity from your problems. When we look very closely at what a problem is and how it lives in you, we inevitably realize that a problem exists in your mind as a thought or a collection of thought related thoughts. So when you wake up in the middle of the night and you say, you think about your problems, which may be either of a physical kind, because health is a big thing, that your body can cause lots of problems, especially as you get older. Another very challenging is your financial situation, can be. Another challenging thing can be your professional or your work situation. Another problem area can be your living situation. And last but not least, other people. <laughs> One of the greatest problems in your life, you might have noticed, the source of problems in your life, to a large extent, is people. <laughs> because you might have noticed people are extremely challenging, so much so that Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist philosopher, said, hell is other people. <laughs> so you, these are the, the problem areas. Now, we all have problems. I suppose I have problems, but I can't remember them right now. <laughs> There's a question, I actually mentioned it in one of the books, a question that you can ask yourself if you feel you're being consumed by your problems and you can't cope anymore and it's just getting too much. The question that you ask yourself that will bring you into a deeper dimension of sanity, a deeper realization of who you are. And that simple question is, what problem do I have at this moment? And you might notice a strange shift, because before you said, oh, God, this to have problems, you need to think about your problems. Okay, let's stay with that question for a while. What problem do I have at this moment? Now, you might say, well, I have a toothache. <laughs> I had that the other day, it was very bad, but not right now, but even if I had it now, it wouldn't be a problem, it would be a toothache. <laughs> it's only if I make a problem out of it, then the, the whole identity comes around it. I, or you become immediately, there's always a victim, an element of being a victim when you have a problem. What problem do I have right now? What problem do you have right now? You might not have know where you're going to have your next meal. Maybe your bank account is empty and your pockets are almost empty. 
I had situations in my life for quite a while like that. Now that could be, say, you might say, of course I have a problem now, that I have no money, and what am I going to, what am I going, am I going to eat tonight? There you have, you already left the now. So if you stay with the now, what problem do I have now? Well, I'm in a prison cell and I'm in for another 15 years. Isn't that a problem? Well, it is, but, but I asked about now. Now, if you really go into it, that removes past and future from your mind. And you might feel yourself breathing. And then you might uh, become aware of sense perceptions. And you look around wherever you are, and you, you see what you see, and you hear what you hear. And perhaps you feel that your body is alive. Perhaps you feel a sense of aliveness pervades your body. And you're breathing, and you're perceiving. And suddenly, you don't actually have a problem. You may have one later, but that won't be a problem. It'll be a challenge. Certainly, there are challenges. If a wild animal came running into this room towards me, would I have a problem? No, because there's no time to make it into a problem. It, <laughs> it, would, it would be a challenge. And how would I respond? I don't know. I might run away, I might face it, I might do what they tell you in Canada when you go for walks in the forest. If you encounter a black bear, make yourself as big, and as, big as possible and go <laughs> But if you encounter a grizzly bear, run. <laughs> well, that might save your life one day. But an animal running towards is not a problem, it's a challenge, and I would respond to the challenge. Now, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I think about the possibility of being attacked by an animal, that's a huge problem. <laughs> and there's no solution to it, because it arises in my mind. And so now you need to see, first of all, that in the present moment, a problem cannot survive. So if your attention is in the present moment, which is the entire essence of Zen, if you want to study Zen, you can either study Zen for the next 20 years or you can listen to what I'm saying right now, <laughs> which is be present with what is totally, be aligned with this moment, let go of past and future except when you need them for practical purposes, but not as a, something that tells you who you are, and give attention to this moment. Not only give attention to this moment, whatever arises in this moment, which are sense perceptions and possibly occasional thoughts or feelings, give attention also, and now we go already, I was going to keep it for towards the end of the talk so that you don't leave before, but I'll do it now. You go so deep into the, into the present moment that you encounter the essence of the present moment. And the essence of the present moment is not what you're perceiving. That's fine. Even when you're present, it's even you're perceiving things more clearly and more vitally. And that's already a wonderful change. Whereas before, if you're absorbed in continuous thinking, which is where problems reside, 
then you are hardly aware of your surroundings. You're just peripherally aware of what's going, peripherally aware there must be a sky somewhere, but you, you may not even have looked at it, the sky in several days. If you're really absorbed in your problems, you might not have looked at the, the flowers or the trees or the, the beautiful dog or whatever. No, you had more important things to think about, my problems. So, so you were consumed by that. And then when you step out of that already, your sense perceptions become more clear and vitally alive. And to see, you see beauty and aliveness where you, before there was just an obstacle in your past. <laughs> and you, you can see other human beings without continuously having to judge them through the mind because when you're present, your sense perceptions are not filtered through conceptualization. That is one of the keys, we come back to that. Your sense perceptions are not filtered continuously. Sometimes, of course, they are, but they are not obsessively and habitually filtered through conceptualization, which means the conditioning of your mind, commenting, pro providing a running commentary continuously on your life experience. This is what I call the voice in the head that talks and talks and says stuff that makes you unhappy a lot of the time. And you don't even know that the voice in your head makes you unhappy. You think reality makes you unhappy. You think a situation makes you unhappy. And you don't even realize that your inner commentary about a situation makes you unhappy, but not the situation. And that, that is in 90% of cases of unhappiness. The unhappiness is caused by your thoughts about something, but not about that thing. You can easily verify that in any situation where unhappiness arises in you, in whatever form, I'm using the word unhappiness as a generic term for what the Buddha called suffering. So whenever you feel anything that doesn't feel good, irritation, anger, resentment, sadness, any form of stress, many, many forms of unhappiness. And you, now you look at the unhappiness, does it arise from the situation I'm in? Or is my mind saying that this situation is really bad and is complaining as if the complaining could bring about a change in the situation. Now, sometimes, of course, action can bring about a change in the situation, yes. When you become irritated about something, see, where does this irritation arise? Is it this situation? Because I'm standing here, and I'm breathing, and I'm looking around, and I'm standing, and I'm breathing, and I'm looking around. Is that enough to make me unhappy? No. To be unhappy, I need to add certain concepts to that situation in my mind and believe in them completely and saying that this is awful. This is just awful. Why can't they do something about it? They are so incompetent. I just don't go And your body doesn't know that your mind is creating this. The body reacts as if what your mind is saying were absolute reality, and the body feels very unhappy too. You feel emotions that are very unhappy. <laughs> and if that moment, any time when suffering arises, 
You say, where does it arise? Is it a situation or is it the narrative in your mind? What if it is the narrative in my mind and not the situation? Is it the situation or is it my narrative, the narrative in my mind? Now, and then you said, let's experiment now. How would I experience this situation if I did not add this narrative to it in my mind? In other words, if I did not add useless, ultimately useless thought to this situation, then what would I be left with? Okay, let's try it out. Where's your problem now? Well, I'm breathing, I'm looking around, and still breathing and looking around. People moving, not moving. Suddenly you're not unhappy anymore. And you see you actually become free internally and you say, okay, that's it, here we are, here I am. It's not that bad actually. I'm breathing and I'm perceiving things. And no thought that I can have in my mind, because the delusion is, and this probably stems from childhood, the delusion is, if I can be really unhappy about it, then the thing is going to, it's going to change. The child, many children learn that lesson because many children, very young children, who often are not given uh, perhaps sufficient attention or love by their parents, they quickly learn that when they become noisily angry and unhappy, a tantrum, that will suddenly give them attention. And so they learn without, not on a conscious level, but they learn unconsciously, unhappiness works. Unhappiness gets me what I want. And that gets stuck as a dysfunctional mind pattern in them. There may be other reasons why it happens. It might already be in the human collective consciousness, been there for hundreds of generations. But you, as the child learns it anew, unhappiness works. Unhappiness will get me what I want. And it's actually true for the little child, it's true. But the, as the child grows up and becomes an adult, it's no longer true. In fact, often it has the opposite effect. If you're unhappy about something that you don't have, you're even less likely to get it. So it has the opposite effect, but they never know that <laughs> because they are stuck with a mind pattern that says unhappiness works. <laughs> and for decades they practice it. And they continuously experience that it doesn't work and they don't figure it out. <laughs> Isn't there a saying, you, you make the same mistake again and again and you, you don't figure out, you don't learn. What a weird thing. You might st still discover it occasionally arising in your own mind. Unhappiness works. If I really, you can voice your unhappiness either internally or externally, then hopefully there's somebody there you can talk to, because if there's nobody there you can talk to and you do it externally, then you're considered totally crazy. <laughs> so, amazing realization that complaining and becoming a victim in your own mind has no useful purpose, does not work, except for one thing. It continues actually to work quite well. And that one thing is 
it strengthens your sense of identity, the egoic self gets stronger. The more of a victim you become, the more you can complain about people and situations and places and what's lacking or shouldn't be here or should be here, should have been said but wasn't said. And you can, nowadays you can do it, disseminate it on the internet too. So it amplifies the dysfunction, all that flows out continuously from your mind and it is useless except for one thing, it strengthens your ultimately false sense of self because this egoic sense of self that I wrote about a lot in the New Earth needs various things but primarily it needs a sense of superiority and it needs an enemy. So the false sense of self needs its enemies and it needs superiority. And you can actually bring that the two are very closely related. They're, they're almost two aspects of the same phenomenon. Now, how is it when you complain about something, do you, do you have a sense of superiority? Yes, you do, because when you complain about a situation or a person, by implication, you are superior to the person you're complaining about, you're superior to the situation you're complaining about, you are morally superior to whatever it is you are judging as deficient. <laughs> that gives the ego its food. And so you carry on doing it, although it has no actual useful purpose, in fact the opposite on a practical level. On a psychological level, it actually has a useful purpose. It strengthens your fictitious sense of self. It strengthens the ego. In other words, it makes you even more unhappy. And unhappy egos are much stronger than happy egos. The ego loves its unhappiness. It loves being unhappy. It loves its enemies. So an, an enemy can be not only a person or a group of people, an enemy can be a situation. The ego also loves the opposition, the antagonism that comes from having an argument with somebody and needing to be right. An incredible driving force in human beings when they engage in a discussion with somebody. It might be completely pointless discussion, but you notice after a while an incredible energy that amplifies what you're saying. It's an emotional energy behind it. You might talk about something completely irrelevant, like what's the distance from here to the moon? Well, it's a million miles. No, it's 150,000, it's 350,000 kilometers. I think that's about really true, but the... <laughs> no, no, that's, you need to be right. And after a while, the truth no longer matters you will introduce a little lie because you need to be I read it, I, I've got a source for it. <laughs> I have a degree in astronomy. Anything to be right. <laughs> in traffic, very unconscious people experience road rage where the other modrest is your mortal enemy. And he or she might have done nothing more than go too slowly in front. But you needed to get ahead. And the ego in somebody who is 
engaged in being right is very huge, it, and the ego loves that. And then you get into an argument, and there's no end to the argument. And then after a while, if it's you, you walk out of the door, and who seconds later the door opens again. You come back in. There's more to say. <laughs> that egoic self is already quite dysfunctional on a personal level. It's more, even more dangerously dysfunctional on a collective level because ultimately the ego is identification with mind and mental positions. Ultimately the ego is a conceptual reality in your head that you derive your sense of self from. And that conceptual reality in the head consists of thought, of concepts. It's a story in your mind. It had a lot to do with your past, a lot to do with certain things that you have identified with around you. That identified means you derive your sense of self from certain things like your physical body is an aspect of ego. If you derive your sense of self from it, then the physical body is the first level of ego, is the physical body. That's me. And it can be, for many people, the physical body is either a great source of unhappiness because they're not satisfied with the way they look. So the ego cannot derive a sense of superiority from it. The ego, which compares itself to others, derives a sense of inferiority from it. So it's, it's very unhappy. Or the body can be a sense of pride. If your body happens to look better than other people's, then the ego will get in there and identify with the way you look, and that becomes the mental form. And it gives the ego some nourishment for a while. How long? We don't know. 20 years? And then gradually it gets more difficult to sustain because some, suddenly you realize that some people have younger bodies than you. <laughs> so there's the body identification that is, becomes part of ego. And you can get a sense of superiority from having a better body. And for some people, 80% of their ego even more is body. <laughs> and this, whenever that's, the, it can be a man or a woman, and the day will come when you look into the mirror and you're no longer satisfied with your body, and so you begin to suffer. And then there's still things you can do. There's a whole industry that is uh, repair strategies <laughs> to delay the inevitable for a while. Of course, there's a difference between enjoying your good looks. If you have them, it's a lovely thing. Enjoy your strengths or your good looks. It's wonderful. Go to the gym. Wonderful things. But the question is, do you derive your sense of who you are from that? Or is it something that you simply appreciate, but you know it is ultimately not who you are? Who you are is invisible. So that's the next, the next level then is your mind, and there are many things there, of course, that you can identify with. Anything that the mind links into, possessions, my this, my that, my that. That's, so if you don't have a great body, you can drive in your Ferrari, and then the, the guy with a beautiful body only has a, 
VW, <laughs> so you can feel superior. But if you have neither the body nor the VW, <laughs> as was the case with me when I was young, when I was in my 20s, I didn't have the body, I didn't have the possessions, what have I got left? And finally I've got something, knowledge. So I was reading lots of books and I became more and more knowledgeable. And then I noticed that I could hit, metaphorically speaking, I could hit people over the head with my knowledge, <laughs> my superior knowledge. And all these people who had developed bodies and, and possessions, or in, I lived in England at the time, people who had family descendants going back hundreds of years, aristocrats who derived their identity from their family past. I didn't have that either. All I knew was my grandfather and knew nothing beyond that. So none of that, these are all ego, but I could hit on, yeah, I'm a great intellectual and I know more than you. Now that also led to enormous amount of unease because I was at a university where lots of people who knew a lot too. So there was always the unease, do I know more than this guy or less? These are all forms of ego. The ego can derive its sense of superiority from many things. Now I had the mind, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, didn't have the possessions, didn't have the body, didn't have the family past, didn't have any of the things. If I, now, if I hadn't had the knowledge either, what would, where would my ego have gone then? Oh, easy. And there are millions of egos there, all the people who don't have any of these things. And that is, they're victims. And I'm not denying that victims don't exist on a practical level, of course, human beings have done dreadful things to other human beings. But if being a victim or having been a victim becomes part of your sense of identity, that is the trap and that is where you get more deeply trapped in delusion. So you need to be able to recognize the mind structures that operate in you because if you don't recognize the mind structures, you are at the mercy of your own mind. You are trapped in the conditioned mind. And that is, spiritually speaking, being unconscious. This is why it's important and even liberating to recognize the mind structures that we all inherit and that those are collective mind structures. So be very careful to, so be, once you recognize a mind structure, the possibility of freedom arises. You can, you're able to step out of the mind and think, oh, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to be engaged in being right. I would not rather be right than happy. And you can, you can recognize these egoic strategies when they still want to take you over. And freedom is to step out of it and recognize that there is a dimension in you that is deeper. We can say either deeper or higher, depends how you look at it. I prefer to say deeper because high seems to imply that, you are, that your real self is up there. My higher self is talking to me. <laughs> I use the expression 
came to me later, it's not in the books. The deep I, I meaning the pronoun I when you say I, normally I, as you might have noticed, is one of the most commonly used words in the language. How many times a day do you say I? <laughs> many, many times. How many more times a day do you think I? Or, of course, sometimes some people talk to themselves and say you. That's another story. <laughs> and some have two people in their heads that argue with each other. Two aspects of ego. Why can't you ever do the right thing? Well, I'm trying and doing my best. No, you can't. You're completely useless. Why? No, I'm not useless. I just, with, with the parents I had, what could I have done with that, those, those unconscious parents? I'm not useless. Yes, you are completely useless. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening.